0: Pray that you hear our prayer, that you receive our worship. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all you are and all you've done. And I pray today that your words would be spoken. Let all who have ears to hear and eyes to see them and receive Before we get started with the message, I just wanted to uh, talk for just a minute about about something as mundane as internet service. Um, we, uh, you know, we've got this nice app now that we're asking people to use, and you know, there's a lot of stuff in their sermon notes every week that you can follow along with, and so forth. The problem that we're having is not so much with our gear in here; it's with Comcast. Um, I know, big surprise. Uh, We're working, but I just, my real point in bringing this up is simply to say that it is something we are working on. And we are hoping, you know, we pay for commercial grade service here. And uh, we're not getting anything close to that. And so, um, (laughs) I'm sorry, what did you say, John? Yeah, there's there's something going on on the weekends, and we're not sure what it is exactly. Whether it's because everybody's home and using you know the service, and therefore our uh, it's limiting our ability to or whatever. But um, for whatever reason, we are we are addressing the problem, and uh, hopefully are going to come up with a solution here at some point soon, which may mean switching carriers. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, John mentioned we had like a tenth of the service today that we had during the week. And it wasn't good during the week, honestly. So, anyway. Um, and, while I'm, we're still waiting on the uh, Prezi, to, uh, just to mention again about the um, anniversary dinner. I know some of you love to wait until the very last minute to decide if you're going to do something. Okay, please don't do that in this case. Two more weeks, two weeks to give us a yay or a nay that you're going to come. Uh, and the reason for that is that we need that two weeks of prep time from the 23rd on to uh, for them to order food and to make sure that there's enough food for everybody. Okay, so don't delay. Go home Find the email, or I will send another one out tomorrow. Another invitation, so that you can um, register and get in there. Because I don't want anybody to miss this. Uh, Doesn't matter if you've only been coming for a couple of weeks, or if you were here from the very beginning. Uh, We want everybody to be there and to kind of enjoy the celebration that we're going to have. So, all right, are we ready, ladies? Good to go. Okay. um, if you've been around this church for very long, you probably have noticed that I like to be somewhat creative with my sermon titles. Um, like last week, the title was Easter's Missing Person, and you know that was sort of a little bit misleading because you might assume I was talking about Jesus in the empty tomb, when in fact I was talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, and so this week, you will notice that I've used a little bit of a play on words between K-N-O-W, no, N-N-O, no, all right? But it's really, um, it's not simply a play on words. Now, right at the very beginning of this message, I'm going to admit that the title is not theologically correct. Regardless of whether you know anything at all about the Holy Spirit, if you have accepted God's offer of salvation, and Jesus is your Lord, then the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. But in my mind, to have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and to have access to, to his power and his insight, and then, but to know nothing at all about him, is pretty much the same as not having him at all. It's really no different than being what's called a functional atheist. A functional atheist is someone who identifies as a Christian, but then who lives as if there were no God that they were ultimately accountable to. So, the main idea that I want to work with today is this. It is important that you know about the Holy Spirit. It's important that you know about the Holy Spirit. And so today we're going to explore several ways of knowing about the Holy Spirit, and then what is possible in each and every one of us through him. Okay, so let's begin. First way that you can know about the Holy Spirit is by reading scripture. Duh, you probably are saying. But across the scriptures we see the mission of the Holy Spirit is to communicate God's love to us, to initiate God's purposes for us, and to manifest God's presence among us. Okay, And so, one way of looking at this is through uh, a scripture, Romans 5.5, 5, and it may be the central lens, I mean that's arguable, but it could be thought of as the central lens through which we understand the Holy Spirit's work. And Romans 5.5 5 says this, And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, Because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with love. Okay. Now this is the first mention in the entire book of Romans about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. And it really teaches us some important lessons. And the first one I've already alluded to, that the Holy Spirit is God's gift to all believers. So it's not possible to be justified by faith Without at the same time being regenerated and indwelt by God's Spirit. Now, this is a, a really important point for Paul to make. You have to kind of remember who he was writing to. Right? He was writing to Christians, but in some cases to the Jewish population, the Jewish Christians in Rome. okay. And the Jewish people at that time viewed the Holy Spirit um, as the Spirit that enabled the prophets to speak, the Old Testament prophets that that we read about. And it was the Holy Spirit that enabled them to hear God and then to speak for God. So in a lot of Jewish traditions, they believe that the Holy Spirit was only available to those who were most worthy. See, but that's not correct. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying he's bestowed to everyone as a gift. It's far different from the way they thought of things. Secondly, it teaches us that the Holy Spirit was given to us at a particular time, namely at what's popularly called our conversion, or when we were justified. So, when you said, yes, I want to follow Jesus, you got the Holy Spirit. End of story. No questions. He's there. And third, having been given to us, one of the Holy Spirit's distinctive ministries is to pour God's love into our hearts. Now, this is distinctive, yes, but it's not exclusive by a long shot. Though Paul tells us that love is paramount in everything that we do, the Holy Spirit enables us to do far more than just love each other. I just want to run through a small sampling of what we see the Holy Spirit doing in the Old Testament. So if, in terms of wisdom and ability, if we looked at Exodus, I don't have these scriptures, I've got, they're in the notes, but uh, Exodus 31.3 says, I have filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. Well, who in the heck was Bezalel? Well, I'll tell you. Bezalel was the chief builder and craftsman of the, the sanctuary, the portable temple or sanctuary that, in which God made his home while they were wandering around in the desert, all right, And if you read Exodus, it's pretty interesting because in a very matter-of-fact way, um, Moses is instructed uh, to tell Bezalel, who has been given this task, to fashion the atonement cover for the Ark of the Covenant and it's to include two cherubim. Alright, now the cherubim are winged creatures that appear in a number of places of scriptures, generally believed to be angels but nobody knows what they look like there is never really any kind of accurate description given that you can you know say yes that's what that's what that's supposed to look like so how did bezalel know how to make a cherubim there's no indication that he's ever seen one and yet we read in exodus that he's now to make several of them Well, that wisdom had to have come from the Holy Spirit. And then if we look at strength, there's Judges 14.6, and that says, At that moment the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, this is Samson we're talking about, and he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. He did it as easily as if it were a young goat, but he didn't tell his mother or father about it. I guess they were PETA members. I don't know. <laughs> but the point is, um, that's some serious strength we're talking about. Right? Prophecy. Samuel. 1 Samuel 10.10. 10. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, they saw a group of prophets coming toward them. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he too began to prophesy. Spirit of God comes, prophecy follows. And then, of course, a a, a scripture that's very familiar to a lot of people, if you not only read the book of Joel, but then read the book of Acts, where Peter quotes from the book of Joel, and he says this, Then, after doing all those things, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions." In those days I will pour out my Spirit even on servants, men and women alike. So the gift of of having dreams and visions comes from the Holy Spirit. And as you read through the Bible, you'll find the Holy Spirit popping up all over the place. This is just a very small sampling of some of those instances. But let's dig a little bit deeper and get a little bit more focused in this study. So, We know that Jesus is supposed to be our model for living, right? So it would be a good thing to explore the Holy Spirit's activity in Jesus' life. So let's look at that. So second point I want to make is that you can know about the Holy Spirit by looking at Jesus' life. Now, to digress from that for just a second, 1 Corinthians 12, 8-10 is where we find the longest list of spiritual gifts in Scripture. Um, and these gifts are genu- genuine, generally referred to as inspirational gifts. Because they're the ones that are especially dependent upon the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they manifest themselves powerfully as an expression of God's love in the world. Okay, There are some other lists. There's one in Romans, and it talks about some things that are... are I guess maybe considered a little more mundane, you know, being an administrator and having some of those gifts, which are still spirit-given, but this is the, the list that I really want to focus on, in, in, at least in terms of Jesus' life. Now, just to look at what the list is, it says this. This is 1 Corinthians 12:8 through 10. 4 to 1 is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between Spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Okay, so that's kind of, that's the classic list. That's probably, like I said, it's the longest list in Scripture. And what I had not really realized before was that you can see all of these, well, I shouldn't say all, but many, if not most of these gifts at work in the birth narrative of Jesus. All right, word of wisdom. Both Mary and Elizabeth speak with wisdom that they could not have known otherwise about God's plan of salvation. It's like they understand it without ever having really read anything about it. A word of knowledge. Before Mary sees Elizabeth, she knows supernaturally through the message of an angel that Elizabeth is pregnant, and Elizabeth somehow knows that Mary is the mother of God. Faith. Mary just believes the word that's spoken to her by this angel without question. Let it be unto me according to thy word. Healing. Healing. Elizabeth and Zechariah are healed of an infertility that had been uh, in their lives uh, forever up to that point. Miracles. Well, the greatest miracle in all history up to this point is that the Son of God became man. Prophecy. Mary prophesies, From now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Then later, after the birth of John, Zechariah prophesies, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and forgiveness of their sins. And then, when Jesus is presented at the temple, Simeon and Anna both prophesy as well. Discernment of spirits. Mary discerns that Gabriel is an angel of God. And that it is truly the Holy Spirit of God that has overshadowed her. And this one I thought was interesting. Interpretation of tongues. We have John, who is a pre-born baby, in utero. Knows no language. Hears Mary's greeting. And rightly interprets what it means. God is in the house. And he leaps for joy at the hidden presence of the Savior. And then the gift of tongues. What the birth of John, Zechariah's mouth was open and his tongue was loosed to bless the Lord. And he too was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not literally referring to the gift of tongues that we really see in in Corinthians. But it's describing a similar phenomenon. And that is the Holy Spirit making a person bubble over with joy in praise of God. So those things all happened as part of the birth narrative. And that's, we're just getting started. So what did, how do we see these gifts in action during Jesus' ministry? Well, Jesus is our model for understanding the gifts of the Spirit because he himself used them preeminently. Uh, As medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas taught, Christ is the first and chief teacher of spiritual doctrine and faith, according to Hebrews 2.4. Here it is clear that all the gratuitous graces, and by that he means the spiritual gifts, were most excellently in Christ as in the first and chief teacher of the faith. So let's look at some of the ways that Jesus manifested the gifts of the Spirit in his ministry. Now the most obvious were healing and miracles. We see that quite often. But he used many other gifts as well. And in every case, the gifts were powerfully effective for his preaching of the kingdom of God and for bringing people to faith in him. So word of knowledge. We see this in this conversation that he has with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus is sitting by the well. The woman comes to carry out her daily task of drawing water. He engages her in this conversation, and he offers her living water that would satisfy her deepest thirst. Well, she's kind of curious, but she's skeptical. She doesn't understand what he's talking about. And she's like, well, pal, you don't have a bucket. There's, you have nothing with which to draw water from. Where do you get living water, especially if you don't have a bucket? Are you greater than our father Jacob, she says? He's the one that actually gave us this well. Well, Jesus explains that the water that he offers her was not some um, earthly, physical spring, but was a spring of water that wells up inside us to eternal life. But she still doesn't understand him. So she still thinks that he's offering her some hidden source of running water. So at this point, Jesus brings this conversation to a whole different level. And he reveals facts that no one, that he in particular, having just met this woman, could have known naturally. Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come here. Well, the woman answered him, well, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, well, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Well, can you even imagine the shock and surprise that must have come across this woman's face? She she probably staggered backwards. It hit her so hard. I mean, Jesus had just exposed an area of sin and woundedness in her life that she had probably spent a lot of energy trying to keep tamped down and covered up. Her life was nothing but a series of broken relationships and repeated rejections. She'd also been unfaithful to God's plan for marriage. But yet as she looked into Jesus' face, she saw no condemnation there. There was only a depth of love and of mercy that she'd never experienced before. He is truly the divine physician and exposes a wound only in order to heal it. So Jesus' word of knowledge, given with gentleness and with respect, was what was needed to open up this woman's heart. So now all of a sudden she realizes that she's dealing not with any ordinary sort of man. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, at this point, her heart was open enough to really hear what Jesus is telling her. And so he answers her I who speak to you am he. She now realizes all of a sudden she is actually in the presence of the Messiah himself. Well, she forgot all about her water jar. <laughs> because she had just taken her first drink of living water. And that water that the gospel tells us later is nothing but the Holy Spirit. And so she runs back to her village and exclaims to anybody who would listen, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? (laughs) Well, her message was obviously incomplete, And it was neither very eloquent nor very theologically sophisticated. But it was spectacularly effective. Because as a result of her testimony, the entire town came to faith in Jesus. And we see Jesus use prophecy quite often. Now in one sense, everything Jesus said was prophetic, since every word that emanates him is a word of God. But on several occasions he uses the gift of prophecy in the more specific sense of foretelling what was to come. Sometimes he did it for consolation and for encouragement and sometimes for warning. Now some of Jesus' prophecies about the kingdom were truly outstanding. Listen to this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air make nests in its branches. That's from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, if you look at this prophecy and you put it against the um, first century geopolitical situation, this seems preposterous. Jesus was a carpenter, from a backwater village in the province of Galilee and he had founded a tiny movement of negligible significance. He did heal the sick and drew crowds, but those were hardly matters that were on the radar of um, the political power of the time, which was Imperial Rome. Yet Jesus prophesied that this little movement would grow far beyond the borders of Palestine to impact the entire world. Now it's probably likely that some of the people listening to this probably scoffed and thought, frankly, this guy is nuts. Yet today, more than two billion people from every nation of the world believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. At times when the early church was beleaguered and its very existence threatened by persecution, the Christians must have been encouraged by remembering these words. Jesus also gave some prophecies of ominous warning, such as when he predicted the destruction of the temple, a prophecy that was fulfilled to the letter in the next several decades, culminating in the catastrophe of AD 70 when the Roman armies destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. Sometimes Jesus gave a specific prophetic word to an individual. At the Last Supper, Peter was boasting about his determination to stay loyal to Jesus, even if everyone else fell away. Jesus put a bit of a damper on his enthusiasm by telling Peter that he would deny him three times. And within a few short hours, that's exactly what happened. And the Gospels show Jesus using a great variety of other gifts, On his way into Jerusalem, Jesus cursed a fig tree because he found no fruit on it. Now, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. And the fruit represents the response of faith and love that Jesus really sought from his own people. And the disciples, of course, were amazed to see that the tree just immediately withers. And Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. The story is an instance of the gift of faith. The Gospels are filled as well with accounts of Jesus' healing and casting out demons. For all who had eyes to see, Jesus' healings were the unmistakable proof that he truly was the Messiah the Lord, our healer, who had come to restore human beings to the fullness of life that God had intended for them. Jesus' miracles included calling a storm on the sea, calming a storm on the sea, walking on water, changing water into wine, twice multiplying a few loaves and fishes to feed crowds of thousands, and raising three people from the dead. The two miraculous catches of fish when the disciples let down their nets on a word that Jesus has given them, even though they had previously caught nothing, can be regarded of instances with the gift of miracles together with a word of knowledge. Jesus' discernment of spirits is evident in his casting out of demons. Sometimes he identifies the evil spirits by the harm they were causing. He said, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. So, it's very obvious from looking at this that Jesus used these spiritual gifts throughout his public ministry not only to manifest the kingdom of God but also to model for his disciples and for us how to live the life in the spirit. And then finally, you can know about the Holy Spirit by understanding his impact on the early church. Before Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives his disciples the Great Commission, in which he assigns them the task of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. But there's a part of the Great Commission that has been so neglected in recent centuries that we could even refer to it as the Great Omission. Jesus said, stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. How in the world are Christians supposed to carry out the gargantuan task of making disciples of all nations? There's only one way, divine empowerment, by the power of the Holy Spirit and his gifts. These gifts are not ornaments for the spiritual lives of a few. They are God-given equipment that allows the church to accomplish its mission. Now, the early Christians took Jesus' command at face value. And both at the time of the apostles and the age of the church fathers, it was very common for ordinary believers to possess and use extraordinary gifts. These gifts at that time were considered normal provisions that God gave to every believer to carry out his or her evangelizing mission. So this resurgence that we are now seeing of the understanding and the practice of spiritual gifts that's occurring all over the world and, all, and in our time is not something novel. It's a return to normal. And as new believers began to walk in their new life in the Holy Spirit, it says awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were be- being done through the Apostles. Today it seems that not all of the church has made the connection between signs and wonders and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of faith, word of knowledge, discernment of spirits, prophecy, healing, and miracles are often the very means by which signs and wonders occur. We see uh, this wonderful example of a gift of faith at work in the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate in the temple. All right. Through some means of revelation, probably a word of knowledge or prophecy, Peter's faith is suddenly quickened by the grace of God, and it enables him to believe with a gift of faith that this man, this beggar, who's sitting at the gate will be healed. Otherwise, why wouldn't Peter have done anything about him before? It's not the first day he was there. It says he was there all the time, every day. And so s- this gift of faith brings this strong conviction that God wants to do something in that very moment. That's why we are so adamant about people paying attention to nudges, to little, I don't know, just this feeling that you know, you should go pray for that person or all of a sudden you get a word or a picture and you know that it's for Fran or you know, whoever. That you know, it's, We're constantly telling people, don't ignore that. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Yeah. And if, you're, you know, if you ignore it, then you're, you're essentially not allowing God to work through you the way that he intends to work through you. There's a number of examples, and there are, this is just a few of many that occur after Pentecost. You know, we read about Peter receives the gift of the Holy Spirit preaches this message of repentance and baptism, and thousands come to know Christ. Stephen, in the midst of being stoned to death, was so full of grace and power, preached powerfully to the, people, the very people that were ready to kill him. Philip was full of the Holy Spirit, and he takes the gospel message to the very first group outside of the Jews that heard it, the Samaritans, and they begin to receive Christ. And then in the instance of Peter and the Roman centurion uh, Cornelius, who was a Gentile, it was the fact that the Holy Spirit fell on his family that convinced Peter that God was giving the gift of salvation to the Gentiles as well. Of course, Paul had many spirit-anointed missions recorded in the book of Acts and in his letters. And in 1 Corinthians 2.4 he writes this, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and power. And if that's not enough, the testimony of the early church fathers tells us convincingly that there was widespread use of spiritual gifts in their time. Irenaeus of Leon um, wrote of people being, this was AD 115 to 202, Wrote of people being cleansed of evil spirits, the sick being healed, and even the dead being raised up. Augustine of of Hippo, or Augustine, which is A.D. 354 to 430, writes that in only two years of record-keeping, more than 70 attested miracles occurred in his church. In 3rd century North Africa, Cyprian reports that even young boys had supernatural visions And the church leaders paid close attention to them, recognizing that the Lord was warning and instructing them through these visions. Tertullian saw firsthand a woman in his church who had been favored with gifts of revelation, including prophecy, words of wisdom, and words of knowledge. And although uh, the day that was named in his honor is currently celebrated with occasions of excessive drinking, St. Patrick, the Apostle to Ireland, was also known for extraordinary spiritual gifts. The list could go on and on. You see, life in the Spirit is about bearing fruit. It's about walking in step with the Holy Spirit. It's about living in fellowship with, with the Holy Spirit. Are you ready to become a friend of the Holy Spirit? See, the Holy Spirit loves to reveal Jesus. And if you want, you can welcome the Holy Spirit to blow through your heart today. And I was thinking um, a little bit about the idea of salvation. As I said last week, that's something that God really seems to have laid a burden on me. And what sort of came to me was that there are a lot of people, I think, that don't realize that you don't have to believe everything in this book to be saved. You can have doubts. You can have unanswered questions. You can even have disagreements with what other people say it means. There's only two things that you have to believe. That Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins and that he was raised to eternal life. That's it. If you believe those things, You believe enough to have faith in Jesus. The rest of this will work itself out. Trust me. And that was what it took for me to come to faith. I've told the story a number of times, and I know people think it's weird, but I got hung up on dinosaurs. (laughs) I was like, all right, you know, I, I grew up Catholic, never had owned a Bible. We didn't have them. They were, I guess, I don't, someone had one. I guess maybe the priest did. We had miscellettes. They only gave us enough for a week. We had enough Bible for a week, right? And even then, you only got to see it on Sundays. So my wife, when we started going to church, when we moved to Richmond, bought me a Bible. So I started to read it. I thought, well, you know. And I'm reading through Genesis, of course. And I'm thinking, all right, well, there's this, that. And then probably also the story of Noah later on. And I'm like, okay, well, there aren't any dinosaurs in here. We know there were dinosaurs, right? There's bones. So where are they? And one Sunday sitting in church, you know, and this was the question that was kind of just rolling around in my head. And I don't remember exactly what triggered it, but I just said, you know what? <clears throat> if I'm going to believe this book, then I'm going to have to allow there to be some questions that just don't quite get settled. And I believe that the story in this book about creation and the existence of dinosaurs can coexist. I don't know how, but that's okay. It doesn't really matter. Because I know Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins, and He is my Lord. And that's enough. So, as we go into a a time of prayer... If that was a revelation to you, if you've been waiting for everything in this book to kind of sort itself out, and um, you could so you can understand all of it, and, and hearing today that that's not necessarily the way it has to work, that it's okay. To not understand everything in here, but just take it on faith. And I think what really, uh, at some point this week, I even wrote it down in my journal that, you know, that the the very first verse of uh, Hebrews, verse uh, or, uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews 11:1, you know, about faith. You know, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the confidence of things not seen. That's all it requires. So if today that faith has somehow sparked in you a desire to confess Jesus as your Lord, then as we're singing or as we're worshiping at the end here and as people are um, out here, and if my prayer folks could come up and be ready, um, then I'm just going to sit here on the front row. And uh, you just simply come up, sit next to me, and we'll pray a prayer and we'll take care of this, and then you too can have this wonderful Holy Spirit as part of your life. And we're just getting started on this series, so we've got six more Sundays where we're going to go into this deeper and deeper to really unpack this, you know, what, um, as, and learn as much as we possibly can about this third person of the Trinity that, is, that seems to be such a mystery for so many folks. So let's pray. Father, I just uh, (laughs) thank you for the dinosaurs. (laughs) They, uh, They were pretty awesome. And I thank you that that question was what got me to get past some of the doubts and the questions that I had regarding your book. And I thank you for the journey that it's taken me on. A journey that I never in a million years expected would end up with me standing in front of group of your fellow believers and preaching your word that you are the God of the unexpected you are a God of miracles and we believe Lord we believe just as surely today as they did in the first century Feelings and prophecy and all the other gifts listed in Paul's letter are just as much for today as they were then. So continue to guide us into truth, Lord. Help us to understand how to use these gifts, how to access these gifts. give you thanks and praise Father God for your amazing love for us and for the gift of your Holy Spirit bless all of these your people let them be towers of righteousness that stand stand out in a world that is anything but righteous thank you Lord bless and keep all of them until they, until we have the chance to be together again this we pray in your son's name Because they all, even if you're not sure you have enough faith, it doesn't matter. If you come up and stand in front of one of them and ask for prayer, you have enough faith. So make the first move. If you need healing, don't leave here without seeing one of them. So bless you all. Have a wonderful week. Look forward to seeing you again next week.